Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we get to continue in our series in Ephesians. We had a short break last week. Wasn't Valter fantastic? Uh, so helpful and inspiring to hear uh, his message about uh, life being a, a really a, a poured-out offering for God. And as we do so, the aroma of Christ uh, filling our life and those uh, that we're connected with. And his stories and uh, his worship was inspiring. I thought it was great. If you haven't heard that, I'd encourage you to hear it. And this week we're back into um, the book of Ephesians. We're going to hear from another powerful man of God. And that's Paul. Uh, and he's got loads to uh, say to us today. Uh, I thought Rod's word was really helpful just now on looking at foundations. Foundations are so important for us. They're so important. And when we get shaken, we need to know that our foundations are strong. And today we're looking at uh, uh, a man who is going through suffering and imprisoned and yet rejoicing. So we're going to be looking at rejoicing in the face of suffering today. And um, before we do that, I'm just going to pray and then we'll, we'll jump into it. So Father God, we thank you that this morning we have a great hope. We have a great king. We thank you that we cannot lose King Jesus because he has a hold on us. We thank you that when all else is shaken, our foundations, if we stand in Jesus, are unshakable. And uh, I pray this morning that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would come and minister to hearts, that you would remind them of truths forgotten, that you'd speak uh, revelation that has never before been understood by your Holy Spirit. Father, come and meet with us. Show us Jesus, Holy Spirit. Just while our eyes are closed, would you just pray a prayer? Say, God, come speak to me this morning. Help me to hear from you. Amen. Amen. So looking at suffering begs the question, how do you hold up when it comes to suffering? How do you do when it comes to suffering? Would you say that you're pretty strong in the face of trials and tribulations? If so, I wonder what your breaking point is. I wonder where you think, oh, enough's enough. Can't take this anymore. Perhaps you're quite stoic. Perhaps you're somebody who keeps a stiff upper lip and just carries on. Or maybe you sort of bury your head in the sand and just put your fingers in your ears and pretend it's not going on at all and just ignore it. Maybe you're somebody who crumbles pretty quickly and feels sorry for yourselves. Men, perhaps man flu comes to mind here. Do you run to some source of comfort when trials come at you? When suffering is in your face? A bottle of wine, perhaps? Or perhaps you indulge in something else that you might be ashamed of admitting when things are difficult, when your back's against the wall? Because when we come under trials and when we come under suffering, temptation is knocking at the door. Here in Ipswich and in England, we live in a very comfortable society. I don't want to paint with broad brushstrokes. I know that people here have suffered extremely. And yes, we've experienced some discomfort in recent years, but really even that revealed how foreign it is to us to suffer or to go through discomfort as we sort of threw our toys out of the, the pram when it comes, I have to wear a mask all the time, you know. I have to walk a certain direction in a shopping mall. <laughs> I have to work from home. Watch more telly. Life's hard. 
And then you think of our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation living through terrible suffering with world wars in which millions died and fathers were never seen again. And children had to go and live in the countryside for extended periods periods away from their parents for months at a time. We think about how, as a nation, food was rationed for years. And we just don't know anything of this. Maybe a few of you do. My wife's grandma speaks about having times in her life where the only toilet that they had was at the end of the garden. And uh, if one of them needed the loo in the middle of the night, it didn't matter what the weather was like, they'd have to go down to the end of the garden. They didn't have disposable nappies. And she said... If the baby had made a mess in the night, she'd have to go down to the end of the garden with the baby, whilst pregnant with another one, through rain or even snow, into a cold kind of shed. And do you know what? Yesterday I got annoyed with my Google Nest because it didn't hear me the second time <laughs> I spoke to it. <laughs> and my son comes into the dining room, and uh, if there's mushrooms in the dinner... Or if there's no yogurt left. It's the worst day ever. (laughs) Handling suffering is not easy. Handling it well is not easy. But it is possible. It's even possible to rejoice in suffering. I want to show you a quick video of a Christian family in the Ukraine last week singing a song in the midst of this recent invasion. father smiling as he leads his family in praise, uh, singing a song that says, he will hold me of their Jesus. He will hold us. So today we're going to look at 13 verses, the beginning of chapter 3, if you want to have your Bible open there, where we see Paul imprisoned and yet able to rejoice. Paul is at peace. He's enthused. He's rejoicing about his life and calling whilst in prison. Let's have a look at it together. He says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles And prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, the gospel just means the good news. This good news is about Jesus. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus through our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, you might not have seen straight away, but actually what we're looking at here is a digression. Paul is about to pray, and then he says, uh, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and then he gets distracted, uh, and he digresses. And I'm glad that he's not the only one, or I'm not the only one, who, when praying, gets distracted. But it's inspired by God's distraction, and he teaches them. And as you'll see in verse 14, as you look, he comes back to it. What was I saying? Oh, yeah, for this reason, and he gets back into his prayer. But at the beginning here, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And I think as he hears himself saying it, or as he writes it, he thinks, ah, I need to give some perspective to what it is for me to be a prisoner. Because as you'll see in verse 13, he comes back and says, so... I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. So this passage is him explaining, yeah, I'm suffering, but let me just open that up for you. Let me just show you the right perspective to have about my suffering. And then at the end, therefore, in light of what I've said, in light of what I've explained, don't lose heart over my suffering. So what does he explain? Let's look at that. We're going to look at uh, uh, five things that it is helpful for a Christian uh, to hold to as they rejoice in the face of suffering. Firstly, a Christian who is able to rejoice in the face of suffering understands the message of Christ. That's verse 2 to 6. So if you want to glance at those, you're welcome to do that on each point. But a Christian who is able to rejoice in the face of suffering understands the message. Suffering, suffering speaks to us. It asks questions of us. It theorizes with us. We might not think about it, but when suffering hits us, questions come. And they hit us hard sometimes. And we need answers for these questions. Suffering asks us things about God. Does he care? You're going through stuff late, you think, does he care? Is he there? Is this a punishment from God? Do I have any hope? Will things ever change? Will it always be this way? These are the questions that suffering demands of us. And if we don't have a message, if we don't have a response, we're in big danger. Christians have a distinct hope because we have a distinct message. This message, it needs to be on our lips, but it needs to start by being on our heart. It needs to be clear and grounded, we need a foundation to stand on. It's the message of a sovereign God, a God who is in control and over all things, as we've heard this morning, a God who is faithful. It's the message of a crucified, risen, reigning, and returning king. This is the message that is distinct for us, that we hold on to. Paul had a unique role in bringing about 
this message and bring about the insights about the mystery that had up until now been veiled. About the Messiah. He explained the mystery and we need to understand it. As we look at the early church, we see in uh, Acts chapter 2, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We need the apostles' revelation. And as they teach, we need to understand. This plan that Paul was able to reveal was always there. It's always present throughout the Old Testament. It's there right from Genesis, right from the beginning. When the fall happened, God promised there would be one who would come who would crush the enemy, who would bring an end to it. The plan was set in motion. It was always there, present. And prophets like Isaiah would speak with incredible insight about this Christ, about this Messiah. Things like this in, in, uh, in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his words, we are wounds, we are healed. Now that was written hundreds of years before Christ came. Incredible insight that Isaiah had, but even he wouldn't have known exactly what it meant. Even he would have been astounded to understand what it meant. The revelation had to come through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And we still need to know that apostolic revelation of the gospel today. A cross on a church wall will not do it for you. It won't save your soul. Even knowing the history of a man crucified by Romans 2,000 years ago will not do it for you. We need the revelation of the apostles that, as John just said, he wasn't killed by Romans. He laid his life down. We need the understanding from the apostles that the Holy Spirit brings them. And if you're not convinced of this message, if you're not holding on to this as your foundation, if you're not convinced of God's love for you, you're placed in his family. You're nailed on identity as a son or a daughter. Your seat at his table, suffering becomes unbearable. You're unrooted. You've got no foundation. You don't know how to hold fast. Do you know why? Because if you're on the fence about God's love for you, your circumstances and your suffering, it becomes your evidence. It becomes your theology, but it's not. Do not build your theology of the goodness of God on your interpretation of your disappointments. Build it on his message. Build it on his promises spoken in the Old Testament, his promises kept in the New Testament. Bring it, build it on his actions, on his perspective. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching... You're really my disciples, then you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. We must have foundations to hold on to in the face of suffering, or we will be blown around by all sorts of doctrine, all sorts of theology that we hold on to, that we, we just go internally and think, oh, I'll try and figure this out for myself. No, we've got, we've got a message that's far greater than anything that is internal. Far, far greater than anything that the world can say to us, and certainly much better than what the enemy will whisper to you. So we must have a theology that is taken from the message. And when faced with questions that suffering asks, like, does God care? We don't look at our car broken down and think, don't God care? 
We don't look at our children being ill and think, does he care? We don't look at the job that we lost and say, does he care? No, we, we know the message. We look at the Son of God on the cross. We say, he cares. He cares. We ask, is he there? We look at the message and say, he's always there. He's always there. Is he punishing me? No. He punished his son. His punishment's being poured out completely at the cross for those who believe. Do I have any hope? Will it ever change? Do you have any hope? Look at this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are the seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We have a great hope. Things are not going to stay the same forever. Will things change? He's making all things new. He's making all things new. Knowing the message keeps your perspective clear in the face of suffering. You must know the message. Paul knew the message. The message also makes something else clear. It helps us to remember that we have an enemy. Denying this or not taking it seriously will lead us to confusion. Why is it like this? Why am I going through this? Why do these things always come at me? Well, you're, you're in the middle of a battle. You're in the middle and there is an enemy. There is opposition. Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Listen, what's going to give us peace? In the world you'll have tribulation. How's that going to be peace? But take heart, I've overcome the world. But it brings me more peace to be aware I will have opposition and not be blindsided by it. And not be thinking, what on earth? Where's this come from? You don't love me. Look, this is hard. No, you're, you, don't, you don't play rugby and get on the pitch and someone takes you out and think, they're hitting me. They're tackling me. Every time I get the ball, someone tries to take. No, you're in the middle of a game. And the Christian life, the Christian message is that you've been brought into something where there is an opposition. There's someone against you. It's helpful to be reminded of this. And Peter says this, don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you. It comes to test you as though some, don't come surprised as if something strange were happening to you. Rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also share, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we must know the message to stand through suffering. Secondly, a Christian who's able to rejoice in the face of suffering is overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. Knows the message of Christ and is overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. Paul is absolutely amazed at God's grace. We sang this morning in our prayer meeting, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. This man who previously had held Stephen's coat, the first Christian martyr, as Stephen was stoned to death. He watched happy. This man who drove Christian families out of their homes to be imprisoned, he's under no illusions that he deserves God's loving kindness. He knows he doesn't deserve it. He's, he's always aware, I do not deserve this love. I don't deserve this grace. Even there in the first verse, it's easy to miss it, but 
he says this, for this reason I, Paul. Paul, he calls himself Paul. Now his Jewish name is Saul. And Saul was the first king of Israel, known for his stature. Here's Saul, so, uh, Paul saying, I, Paul. Do you know what Paul means? It means small. So, big Saul has become small Paul. And he's happy with that. I'm not counting on my great record. I'm not, not looking at my, my stature. No, I come to this God, I know how small I am. He's humbled by God's grace. Are you humbled by God's grace? Do you kind of think, oh, that's kind of, I've got used to it now. I don't really, you know, I kind of think, actually, I probably would have got into heaven on my own, to be honest. I kind of deserve it. If you understand God's grace towards you as the unmerited, unlimited, and undeserved gift that it is, you will be humbled by it, and you'll be forever grateful. If you don't hear yourself being grateful much lately, come back to the grace of God. I knew a pastor who, when asked how he was doing, he would always reply with a smile, I'm doing better than I deserve. Now that's true all the time. If you've had a wonderful week and the blessings of friends and, and things have been poured out on you, you're doing better than you deserve. But if you're going through suffering, do you know what? If you're in Christ, you're still doing better than you deserve. That can hold you through suffering. That can give you something to rejoice about. Not just something, that is what we have to rejoice about in Christ Jesus. Pastor and author Mark Dever says, I think one of the most disturbing rights people believe is that they have the right of fellowship with God. Just by right. As if it's God's job to just let me in. As if I deserve to be there. We can be in total denial of what we read a few weeks ago in Ephesians 2. That says, you were dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. What's that thing that they have in hospitals? You know, you're flatlined. There's nothing there. You can't contribute much as a corpse. You were dead. You know, sometimes we think, you know, I was drowning in the water and God threw me a lifeline and I grabbed on. No, you weren't. You were face down. A corpse. He raised you up. He breathed life into you and he put your feet on a rock. This is the grace of God and Paul is amazed by it. We can be so arrogant as if to believe I probably would have made it anyway. As if Jesus is kind of stealing our thunder, our glory. You know, I was about to finish the job off and Jesus turns up and takes all the glory. I would have been all right. I was doing so well. Like we were working towards something, as if we were accumulating something impressive. Now, you don't want to know what you were accumulating. You don't want to think about, what was I really mounting up? No, no, no. If you don't think you deserve God's judgment and vengeance, then you're not going to be amazed by grace. Puritan John Flavel said this, In times of adversity, if thy heart refuses to be comforted, then compare the condition thou art in with that which others are and, it, and in which thou deservest to be. Others are roaring in flames, howling under the scourge of vengeance, and among them I deserve to be. I've heard it said that hell is full of people who think they deserved heaven, and heaven is full of people who knew they deserved hell. 
grace of God is astounding. You must meditate on the grace of God and be full of confidence in it. You know, I played you that song by the Ukrainians there singing, but it's an old hymn, but the words were this, when I fear my faith will fall, fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me, so he will hold me fast. We need someone who holds us. We can't say, I'm pretty good at holding on. I'm pretty good. I I can work through this. I can get there. Their joy and peace didn't come from what they could do. But even in the face of their failings and in the face of suffering, there is another holding on to them. This is the grace of God for us. We've got to keep remembering the truth is that he loves us because of what he is like, not because what we are like. He saves us because he is good, not because we are good. And in that grace, we're humbled and we're also empowered. Empowered to continue on. Empowered to face adversity and trial and suffering and love him and pursue him and continue. Thirdly, a Christian who's able to rejoice in the face of suffering proclaims the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 8 and 9. Paul once hated Jesus. He was glad to see Christians dying and imprisoned. He hated the followers, and now suddenly he's consumed with proclaiming the riches of Christ. To the Colossians, Paul says, we proclaim him. We proclaim him. We don't proclaim a bunch of rules. We don't proclaim a bunch of theology, a bunch of doctrine. We proclaim Jesus. He is our hope. He is our help. He is our savior. If you are to rejoice in suffering, we've got to remember that we are not the center of the universe. Now, that's helpful anyway, isn't it? We've got to remember, I'm not the center of the universe, but don't leave it there. Remember that there is a center of the universe. There is one who is at the center of it all. There is a man who is the center. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our confession. Jesus is the one who's changed everything. When Peter says to always be prepared for an answer, to answer for the hope that there is within you, sometimes the questioner will be suffering. We use that as an, ap- uh, an apologetic uh, verse that people will ask us. And yes, it is for that, but sometimes suffering will be the one questioning. Sometimes Satan will be the one questioning. We have to be ready for an answer. Jesus is my answer. Jesus is the one I proclaim for the hope that I have within me. I have a boast when suffering comes. When suffering comes, and it will, those questions will be asked, and the enemy will whisper, and there's a defiance in the face of the enemy. There's a defiance that we can have, a boast, a response, an ability to even taunt those pathetic lies that the enemy gives to us and say, look at the cross. Look at the lamb slain for my sins. Satan has lost. It is over. Boast in the cross. Tell the enemy, feast your eyes on my Savior. Feast your eyes on Jesus. There's a redeemer. We've got to lift up our eyes to him. The one seated at the right hand of the Father, enthroned on high, 
when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, He is Lord. This is what we do when we sing songs together. This is what we do when we sing our praise times together. We're declaring to our hearts, we're declaring to the world, we're declaring to each other the riches of Christ Jesus. We've got to keep doing this, our battle cry to boast in Jesus. His riches are unsearchable. And when suffering comes, do you know what suffering often does? It, it comes because something that we deem valuable is threatened. That's often what suffering is. My time is threatened, or, or my comfort is threatened, or my, my family is threatened. My finances, my health, my safety is threatened. We need to see that there's something of far greater value that is unsearchable in its riches. That even when other things are threatened, we hold on to the one who can never be threatened in his riches. They will, he will never cease to be who he is. He will never cease to be more valuable than anything we could ever hold on to. That we can say, I have him. So in the face of suffering, we proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. Number four, a Christian who is able to rejoice in the face of suffering has a high view of the church of Christ. Verses 10 and 11. Paul is energized by the work that he's doing. The work of God's wisdom on earth. He sees a great mission. He has a great perspective, a great vision of what he's on the earth to do. He's encouraged to withstand beatings and shipwrecks and imprisonments because he's convinced that God is up to something. God is up to something that is the greatest thing that God has ever done, and he gets to be part of it. That is pretty inspiring, isn't it? The church is the greatest thing that God has ever done. And we can think, well, you know, think of that in light of creation. Think of how you think of the planets. Think of the Milky Way and the universe and the solar systems. And think of, you know, these David Attenborough programs. You just think, these these animals, these plants are astounding. I mean, how? How? How does this do this? Why does that thing do that? It's just incredible wisdom of God in creation. And yet, wisdom, his wisdom is most displayed in the salvation of mankind in the beautified bride of Christ. That's where he's chosen to display his wisdom to the heavenly beings, to the world. The church is a witness for the glory of Christ. We make known the multifaceted wisdom of God. The same word, this word was what they used for, is in what used in the Bible for Joseph's coat. It's the, it's the multicolored wisdom of God. The wisdom is so great that God uses it to proclaim to heavenly beings. His grace and glory are displayed in a diverse people, many colors, many cultures, many ethnicities, many messy backgrounds, all called, redeemed, forgiven, made alive and united in Jesus. Angels marvel as they look on and see Jew and Gentile united. They see zealots and tax collectors standing shoulder to shoulder as brothers. Previous Christian killer, now an apostle, planting churches. Marriages that looked way too far gone, being restored. Addicts 
lives restored and leading rehabilitation centers. Murderers repenting and turning to Jesus and finding their lives restored. Heavenly beings look on with slack jaws. How? How has he done it again? He's done it again. He's doing it everywhere. He keeps doing it. Look what God's doing. His wisdom is unsearchable in the church. How did he do that? Unbelievable forgiveness that was birthed at the cross and resurrection. You might have seen this last year. I think we've got a photo of this young man in America who was a Christian whose brother was shot and killed, innocent brother, by this policewoman accidentally. And he said to her in the courtroom, I don't want you to go to prison. I forgive you. I want you to know Christ. And he said to, he said to the, the judge, can I give her a hug? And he walked down and gave her a hug. You can see in the background the picture of the judge in tears. This is the wisdom of God. I bet, I bet you know, when it says the, the uh, heavenly beings, I don't think it just means angels. I think it means the spiritual realm looks on. I think there are dark beings rub their hands together thinking, yeah, we got that one. And then seeing that sort of thing and going, what? victory. No, wisdom of God's grander. It's greater. Thinking, I thought we broke that family up and he's restored it. How did he do that? It's awesome wonder of God in the church. In the mighty church, Paul sees the bigger picture than his suffering. He sees purpose even in his suffering. You know, it's amazing to think, He's in prison as the Apostle Paul, the church planter that is, is birthing the church with the Holy Spirit and the other apostles. And he's sitting in a prison and he's very content to think God's at work building his church. He's not thinking, God, if you're building your church, I need to be out of prison. I need to be out there. I need to be doing it. I need to be getting on with it. And sometimes you can think, I don't get the suffering. I don't understand God's purpose in it. Well, he's very content to see God has purpose in it, even if I don't know what it is. And at least in part, we know the awesome wisdom of God as we have letter after letter that we would probably not have had if Paul hadn't gone to prison and been sitting there writing them. We have the manifold wisdom of God unraveled to us, opened up to us. God is in control. God knows what he is doing. And we can trust that as he builds his church... He has purposes in our suffering. If it hasn't come about because of foolish decisions, trust his wisdom. My wife and I, we tried to start moving about 10 months ago, moving house. Need a bigger house. Our kids are going to be teenagers at some point. We haven't got enough space. And uh, we had an offer accepted on a house. That was nine months ago. At times, the, the temptation is to think, come on. What's going on? To grumble. And then you just think, no, God's about something. He's doing something. It's, it's fine. We've got a house. I'm grateful for what we've got. Got to see things. God's at work. I was uh, asking God about it. I was asking God, God, what do you, what do you want us to do about this house? Let's see if I can find it now. Um, he, and I thought he sent me to a verse. Oh, I'm looking in the wrong place. Um, got my phone on me. No. I can't remember what it, what it was. Um, give it a second. Anyway, it's, uh, it, it, I looked up a verse and it said, this is why I have sent you, Timothy, to preach the gospel to the church. 
And it was like God was speaking to me, saying, don't worry, I've sent you. This is what you're here for. Just, that, 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 I didn't, didn't give me an answer about the, the house. Gave me an answer about what I'm doing. We've got to be aware of God's, God's building the church. That's what he's doing. And that can give us great comfort in our sufferings and in things that we don't understand. And Paul understands that as the glory and wisdom of God is revealed in the church, there will be opposition, as we said earlier. There will be opposition. It's part of the territory. When opposition comes, understand. This is part of the territory. The church is significant. It's important. There will be opposition. There will be. And we press on. Number five, finally, a Christian who is able to rejoice in the face of suffering draws near to God through Christ. Verse 12. If we want to know peace and joy in suffering, we will know it most powerfully by drawing near to God. Drawing near to God. The old covenant showed just how impossible that was. In the Old Testament, we see very few people are ever allowed to go into the presence of God. There were serious restrictions that would result in death if they were ignored. It was just the great high priest who would go in. He would have to go through thick curtains, making it very clear God is not accessible to just anyone. It is not okay for anyone to just stroll in. God's holiness demands that sin cannot coexist with him. Like I cannot coexist if I get too close to the sun, sin cannot coexist if it gets too close to God. He's too awesome. He's too powerful. He's too holy. The first time that Moses meets with God, he comes to him, doesn't even know who this God is, and God says to him, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. You're standing before God here. This is not a joke. Take your shoes off. And later on, Moses says to God, can I see your glory? God says, no one can see my glory and live. It's too, it's too powerful, too awesome. I'm set apart from you. I'm not the same as you. I'm other than you. Animals would need to be killed. Blood would need to be shed. The price of sin would need to be paid so that one priest could access on behalf of all of God's people. God's presence was a holy place treated with utter reverence. So what happens now to make Paul say, now we can access God with confidence? All of us can access God with confidence. Has God chilled out a bit now? Is he a bit more chilled? Put a flower behind his ear? Has he lost his holiness? He started not to care about sin? Has he started to just sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't matter? No. No. Some of you need to hear that. That is not the gospel. The good news is not that God has gone soft. That would be terrifying news. We need justice. The world needs justice. He's a God of justice. He hasn't gone soft and said, oh, I can't be bothered anymore. Just come on, come in. Like a tired parent. Tired. I'm tired of saying no. Come on. That is not the gospel. The good news is that the righteous, holy, mighty, just, awesome God has shown his mercy, not by letting us off our sin, not at all. The good news is that he has dealt with the sin. He's dealt with the sin once and for all by taking the punishment for it upon himself on the cross. He's dealt with it so you can be confident. So that you're not coming to him each week saying, I'm not quite, I'm just analyzing myself all the time. Have I done enough? Am I okay with you this week? 
Have I pleased you this week? That's not confidence. There's confidence we can have. If you're here today and you know you've been accommodating sin in your life, you know you've been spurning God's wisdom while still wanting the benefits that he offers, then he will not just overlook that. You need to hear that today. He loves you way too much for that nonsense. That is complete nonsense. I can sin and just carry on in it. And God's job is to just let me in. That is utter nonsense. He loves you way more than that. And he is too glorious and holy for that. He wants to deal with your sin. Because he wants you to have real peace. I had that sometimes where I know one of my kids has done something naughty because the look on their face. It's like they have something behind their back. And I didn't know they were doing anything naughty, but I can just tell by the stance. And sometimes we can think, I think I'm getting away with this. I think I'm getting away with this, but it's clear we're not. We know something. I'm behaving in a way that is not okay. Pretty much sticking a middle finger up at God and, and, and kind of thinking, but he's... Isn't the gospel that he's okay with me, he lets me in anyway? No, he wants to deal with your sin so that you can be at peace. So you can say, I've walked away from that. I've turned away from sin. And we'll still make mistakes and we'll still come to him and he will help us to deal with it. And he will forgive as we repent. But you cannot walk blithely in sin thinking that he's okay with that. That's not the gospel. He deals with it, and the cross is where he's dealt with it. He's put an end to sin, and, he's, and I would encourage you to bring your sin to the cross to know it dealt with. Because of Jesus, you get to draw near. It's because of his work that we get to take a hold of the kindness of God by accessing him with confidence. Not through trying to negotiate with your quite good week. I've done quite well this week. Is that right, God? Happy with me? It's well big. There's a confidence we can have. I know that he's done well. I'm not sure that I've done well. I know he's done well. I stand in him. I revel in that. I confidently come through Jesus and his perfect life on my behalf. Because of Jesus, I get God. Because of Jesus, I get to be with him. In the face of suffering, that is the greatest gift there could ever be. In fact, God sometimes allows suffering to remind us that is what you need. You need him. Sometimes he allows you to go through struggles. He allows you to, to be purged of things and to lose things so that he can say, hey, do you remember that it's me that you need? That was what I found so moving last week in Walter's story when he said he, he, he gave 2,000 pounds that he'd saved up and the same day was given 6,000 pounds. And you think, oh God, you're so kind, you're so glorious. And a few years later, he made it up to 8,000. He felt God say, give it all again. He gave it all again and he got a car bill. I just thought, oh. Do you know what? That's the love of God. You don't need money, Walter. You need me. Thank you, Jesus. I can never lose you. I can never lose you. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it says in the Bible. I don't need money. I need him. I need him. And he gives us himself. So we are, in the face of suffering, able to draw near to God through Christ. What does that look like? Well, it looks like prayer. 
prayer that is received by a loving father who's pleased with you, who looks at you and says, you're my beloved in whom I'm well pleased because you're placed into the one that he's well pleased with. Come to him. Use in your suffering. Use that access. Take hold of that access. Revel in that access that we have. It looks like communion, which is what we're going to do right now. We're going to come and remember it's the blood that I come through. It's the body of Jesus broken for my sake. That's my confidence. That's my confidence as I come to God. Not have I done well enough, but he's done well enough for eternity for me. And there may be some of you who think, I've been thinking I could have my cake and eat it. I've been thinking I could sort of revel and walk in sin and go against things that I know he doesn't want me to do and still, you know, behave as if I'm a child of God. And You, you can't have both. You're either... You're either his completely or you're kidding yourself. And we need to step into this in, in uh, communion through Christ. Now next week, Paul looks at, um, a, Paul prays and he prays what is crucial for us to be living by. He prays that they would know the love of God. To be able to live this, we need to know the love of God. To be able to stand confident we need to know the love of God. So we need to pray that with this access that we have now, that we would know the love of God. I wonder if the band would just come. Um, some of you have been taking your theology from your circumstances, and you've just sort of said, God, it's not good enough. You're not with me, and started to believe things that aren't true. Today is a chance to say, okay, God, I've been believing stuff just because I made it up. I haven't been holding on to the message. And what a message it is. What a message. What grace. What riches we have in Christ. What a mission we have to see the church advance. The wisdom of God. Let's draw near now through Jesus. I wonder if we just uh, take hold of your communion things. Father, life is hard, but you said don't be troubled by the world because you've overcome it. You said not to be surprised at trials, as though something strange were happening. Lord, we're in a battle, but you have given us what we need to be sustained. You've given us this great message, this great purpose, this great future. We just pray, Lord, where, where we've quite easily crumbled, where we've quite, quite easily got grumpy, where we've just thought, I need to just ignore it. You don't want that. You want us to bring our suffering to you, to the cross. You want us to bring our sin to you, to the cross. You want us to deal with you, giving us access to you. Jesus, at the Last Supper, he said, this is my body broken for you, for your confidence to come to the Father, for your access. Let me just take that wafer, that bread, and just remember his body broken for me. Let's just thank him. This is my confidence, Jesus. Let me take that wine. This is my blood poured out for you, that you would be able to know forever I can come, because he took the punishment, because he dealt with it. Let's just uh, 
stand. We're going to just sing a song together. And as we do, we're going to proclaim the riches of Christ to ourselves, to one another, to the heavenly realms. I have a great hope. I have a great Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Thank you, Jesus.